Episode of the Josias Podcast. On this episode, Potter and I are joined by friends of the podcast, Brett Favaris and Felix de St. Vincent, to discuss Collingwood, McIntyre, Strauss, and historicism. We talk about the way McIntyre drew from Collingwood and Strauss's critique of Collingwood. At the end, Brett and I let go of debates about texts and the views of historical figures and debate the truth of the matter. Here I'll say that my position is really that McIntyre has a point about coming to know, but it's wrong about knowing itself, at least if one is to escape relativism. The best portion of the discussion was probably after we stopped recording. Maybe we should start recording the after chatter for our Patreon subscribers. Anyways, enjoy. Welcome back. This is uh, the Josias podcast once again. Uh, this week we're joined by Bayou Brett Favris and Felix de St. Vincent. Uh, Felix, Brett, how are y'all doing? Doing great. Felix? Yeah, things are good. Thanks for having uh, me on. Glad, uh, glad to hear it. So we're talking about Collingwood, Strauss, McIntyre, historicism, you know, good... Uh, Good jock topics for a Saturday in autumn here. Uh, football season. Football season. Notre Dame's an hour away from kickoff. I don't know what the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets are actually playing today. I'm afraid to look. Uh, and but, we listened uh, to a, a little bit of Mozart's opera, Die Entführung aus dem Sarai, uh, at the start. This is from the very end of the opera, which is the story of some Europeans who have been captured by a Turkish pasha, and then the the fiancé of one of them, he comes to rescue them. But after various misadventures, they're caught by the pasha. Um, and his father was, was the great enemy of this the guy who came to rescue them, so they're expecting to receive the full measure of Turkish cruelty. <laughs> but then surprisingly, the pasha magnanimously lets them go. And this is them singing about how great the pasha is for letting them go. So what's the connection with historicism for this? Well, it's about the comparison of different cultures. And here you have a kind of uh, enlightenment view of uh, European culture as being sort of backwards and vengeful and needing enlightenment and... Muslim culture is being somewhat more advanced and maybe a model that could be followed. Um, but the, the basic point is that you have this idea of uh, different moral levels of different cultures um, and that 
presupposes some kind of trans-historical standard by which you can measure different cultures. So that's that's actually a really good jumping off point. But before we really get into it, why don't we back up real quickly? And uh, Brett, could you tell us a little bit about who Collingwood was and why he's important, why Strauss and McIntyre devote so much time and at least uh, in McIntyre's case, draw so much from him? Sure. Yeah. So Collingwood was born in 1889. He was a chair of philosophy at uh, Oxford, uh, died right before the end of World War II. And interestingly, uh, the chair that he vacated in, was filled by Gilbert Ryle. And uh, he was sort of the end of a line of idealist philosophers uh, who were influenced by Hegel and other German idealists. Um, but And that's probably what most people who have heard Collingwood's uh, uh, name know him for. But he's also really synthesizing a lot of interesting elements. So... Real quick, uh, he grew up as a child in a Ruskinian arts and crafts community. Uh, And so the influence of uh, Ruskin and the importance of art and experiencing nature was really key, but also the importance of the Italians and uh, Italian culture. And from that, he was really influenced by the Italian idealists, so people like Benedetto Croce and uh, Giovanni Gentile. And... They really take that kind of Hegelian influence and focus on uh, the practice of history as a discipline. And Collingwood really takes that to the next level in his own work by um, applying that kind of Italian emphasis, uh, the Italian idealian emphasis on history, and synthesizing that with his own experience as an archaeologist. So in addition to being uh, a philosopher at Oxford, he was also the leading uh, archaeologist of Roman Britain. And so uh, it's, it's all these things kind of coming together that Collingwood is really trying to bring about what he calls a rapprochement between history and philosophy. And where does his idea, because I, I get the kind of sense that he is less important for his actual history than, uh, than he is for his sort of theories of history. Right. So at the time, like, most people knew him as this guy who wrote all the stuff on um, the ancient Romans in England. And that's actually where McIntyre as a child first knew of Collingwood and got really into his work. But in terms of the, the big development that he brought um, to the understanding of the relationship between history and philosophy is what he calls uh, the logic of question and answer. And this is the idea that you can only really understand a text, a philosophy, really anything, by understanding uh, the question that it's designed to answer. And that you can't really understand philosophical propositions as sort of a chain that progresses linearly. It's actually a web of all these interrelated questions and answers that really have to be understood in context. So he he's basically situating all philosophical discourse historically then. It's not the perennial questions, it's questions that arose from particular, que- uh, or answers that arose from particular questions at a particular time and place. Exactly. And so this can sort of be in a superficial way read as a kind of radical historicism. But the the important thing for Collingwood is that he's able to show how, not just how various cultures or various philosophies or traditions are historically situated, but how they can come in contact with each other and understand each other without sort of imposing uh, sort of false universality onto each other. So one one example that he brings up is uh, he he objects to philosophers who think that all previous philosophers have been talking about the same thing. So he, he gives the example of political philosophy, uh, 
you have these um, modern English realist philosophers who will look at political philosophy and they'll think of it as a continuing conversation about the state. And you'll say, this is what Plato says about the state. Here's what Aristotle says about the state. Here's what the Stoics say. Here's what Machiavelli says. Here's what Hobbes says. Here's what I say. And uh, Collingwood says, this is uh, a misunderstanding. Um, it's like going back to the ancient uh, Greeks and, and thinking that um, trireme is the Greek word for steamship. And then you see, well, what did the Greeks say about steamships? It's a lot of nonsense. Obviously, they didn't know very much about steamships. Um, but really, it's because the ancient Greek polis is something different from the state. And so the question, what is the polis, is not the same as the question, what is the state? So what what this really reminds me of is there's this great uh, uh, Borges uh, short story, uh, if I'm even pronouncing that right, uh, called uh, uh, Averroes' Search, which is about Averroes trying to figure out what uh, the poetics is talking about. And at least in the story, Averroes is in a culture that has no idea what a play is. So he gets it wildly wrong because he's trying to understand it in a different cultural context where he can't really understand what the heck a drama would be because they don't have any such thing, at least in the short story. Um so where does where does uh, if that's co- sort of Collingwood, uh, where does Strauss start the critique then? So Strauss and Collingwood cross paths pretty early uh, in the 1930s, uh, where Strauss had um, proposed one of his uh, works on Hobbes, his early works on Hobbes, to uh, the press at Oxford, and Collingwood was one of the the main people there at the time, and he sort of rejects it haughtily, and there's an exchange that goes uh, a little bit, but. Um, they really, Strauss didn't really start digging into Collingwood in an overt way until about six years after he died. And that's when he came out with a book on, um, uh, and I'm sorry, a review of Collingwood's book, The Idea of History. And around that same time, he had also been talking about the problem of historicism sort of more explicitly. Uh, and what happens is, is that later, uh, next 10, 15 years, Strauss brings up Collingwood as sort of his stand-in uh, exemplar of the era of historicism. He uses this a lot in his lectures. And usually what he says is, is that, okay, this is an English language audience. Y'all don't really know about Heidegger. Um, it would be too complicated to get into that. So we'll just use this stand-in Brit, essentially. And we'll, we'll sort of use him as a way to talk about the problem of historicism. So, so uh, Felix, can you, can you talk a little bit about what the problem of historicism is for uh, Strauss? Why is it a problem? Why not just say that's wrong? Sure. So first of all, I, I agree with Brett that uh, Collingwood is probably a stand-in. Um, a stand-in for German philosophers who have developed historicism um, to a greater extent. Um, and so when Strauss points to Collingwood, he's, he's showing English language readers that there's something that he views as equivalent um, in, the, in the English language world. Strauss makes a distinction between historicism and radical historicism, and that might be a good place to start. That's a distinction that comes from his famous book that comes out of the Walgreen Lectures, uh, Natural Right and History. And you can be a historicist. Hegel's a historicist, for example, um, maybe the best example, um, 
because in the preface to Elements of the Philosophy of Right, he'll say that philosophy is its time comprehended in thought. But Hegel also has an idea that philosophy can court, can, sorry, chart the course of history. Um, and so in some ways it can stand outside of history and talk about a direction of history or, or a, it, it has, a, has the overall view, has the 10,000 foot view over history. Radical historicism in contrast to something like Hegelian historicism is philosophy that doesn't claim to be able to have any kind of claims outside of its own time or place. And what irks Strauss about this is that unlike questions of naval architecture or marine engineering or whatever kind of questions the trireme steamship is germane to, uh, Strauss thinks that philosophy comes back to certain fundamental questions that are always there. Questions like what, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, and that it can't ultimately um, wrap its head around these questions. But the fact that some of these questions are unanswerable gives philosophy a kind of fixed, ca uh, fixed character. That there are certain puzzles about nature um, that have you know, made, it, made us wonder throughout history that we never get beyond. And so thinking about philosophy as, as historicist uh, obscures or blocks the path um, the, the, a method that would get us at some of these fundamental questions, I'd say. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Patter. Yes. I mean, so the radical historicist is someone who doesn't think that, doesn't exclude himself from his own historicizing. So he thinks that he himself is one of the historically re um, relative positions. And Strauss, Strauss brings up, uh, Collingwood's description of metaphysics here. Um, maybe I'll read just a little quote from Collingwood. Uh, this is in the, in the Strauss text. He's, Strauss is quoting Collingwood from the autobiography. So Collingwood says, it became clear to me that metaphysics, as its very name might show, after physics, though people still use the word as if it had been paraphysics, is no futile attempt at knowing what lies beyond the limits of experience, but is primarily at any given time an attempt to discover what the people of that time believe about the world's general nature, such beliefs being the presuppositions of all their physics, that is to say their inquiries into its detail. Secondarily, it is the attempt to discover the corresponding presuppositions of other peoples and other times and to follow the historical process by which one set of presuppositions has turned into another. So that's Collingwood. And then Strauss comments, in other words, the central and highest philosophical discipline, metaphysics, is nothing but the understanding of our fundamental presupposition. Seeing it together with other cultures or other people's fundamental presuppositions and the movement from one set of presuppositions to another. Um, in other words, you, there's no real knowledge of um, the the general the whole as Strauss would call it the the, the nature of being in general um, the, but there's just certain presuppositions that different times uh, have about that and it, that will affect their accounts of the details and so for Strauss I think he's reading Collingwood as a radical historicist who is historicist also about his own uh, historical moment that is he doesn't exempt himself 
uh, from being a product of history, but he sees modern England as being one historical moment among many others that happens to have these presuppositions rather than others. Yeah, and Strauss has an interesting critique where he basically says either you're falling to this camp and you're acknowledging that this sort of claim would have to apply to yourself, or you're undermining your own argument, right? Right. The historicists need to be radical historicists. They're, they're kind of naive in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to the degree they're not doing that, they're not being consistent, is, calling with, I mean, right. is, is Strauss's claim in the critique. But it's also important that, you know, Strauss, it's, it's unclear how familiar he was with Collingwood's work beyond uh, the idea of history, an introduction that was written in the book that mentions his metaphysical uh, work, uh, or his book on metaphysics, and his, um, his intellectual autobiography. But the big thing that, that comes up regularly whenever Strauss talks about Collingwood is that uh, this idea that in understanding metaphysical, the practice of metaphysics in this way, he's obscuring, uh, again, we talked about as the enduring questions. Yeah. And part of this is not just that he sees these questions um, as changing uh, or not applying necessarily universally, but that he sees them as progressing so that they can move forward in a sort of a, within this, uh, a tradition of... Who's the he there? Is that Collingwood or, or Strauss? So in other words, what Strauss is really emphasizing here is the questions enduring, in part because they're unanswerable, at least in any kind of definitive sense. And where does, where does uh, so th- that sort of gives us a, a decent, quick intro to Strauss's critique of Collingwood and Collingwood's basic theses. What does McIntyre take from Collingwood? Because I take it that Strauss is rather critical of Collingwood, but McIntyre, more than just learning about Roman history as a little boy, McIntyre actually takes something into his mature philosophy from Collingwood. Right. Joel, before we move to McIntyre, I'd just like to make one comment. Um, I think certainly it's on Strauss's terms that unless you're a radical historicist, unless you're a radical historicist, you should be no kind of historicist at all. And Strauss thinks that um, the the inseparability of um, historicity and existence um, fundamental to Heidegger's thought is a is a brilliant breakthrough and makes him you know even more you know archetypal radical historicist that he's really um, focused on what's most important in Nietzsche or something like that. However, I don't think that. Um, um, Christians want to glide over this point uh, too quickly um, and give this point to Strauss. Um, because, of course, uh, Christians do think that uh, the fullness of time or the pleroma can be revealed within history. Uh, of course, it doesn't have the character of an enlightenment, as you know, we're, we've worked up to a point in history that all history has worked up to an enlightenment, and now we can see the whole because we're at the end of history. Um, the way Hegel, or at least that kind of potted version of Hegel, would have us believe. Um, but we do have we do have revelation within history. Yeah. Um, so that I don't want to take the tangent, but I, I, I uh, you know, notoriously never resist tangents. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is actually very interesting here. Saint Thomas teaches early in the Summa that theology is both speculative and practical, but it's primarily speculative. And for him, it's pretty clear that theology is most of all speculative and universal. And it's very hard. 
on the one hand, Thomas gives very good answer uh, arguments for that. On the other hand, a lot of the 20th century movement of theology in the Catholic Church, at least, seems to be about talking more about the history and the moment of time and all that good stuff that you were adverting to there. And it's to a certain degree, there's a tension there in St. Thomas himself, because theology is also about primarily about a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Any of that? Well, you, you, the problem here is partly a, a problem of um, different senses of universal. So for Aristotle, uh, science is about what is universal. And in, at first, what he means by that is what is universal uh, in speech. So yeah. science is not about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It's about man the universal, uh, the one among the many. Um, so you, you will uh, show that the human soul is immortal, not that Socrates' soul is immortal. Um, and it's kind of irrelevant what Socrates and Plato do in their particular lives. The unchanging truth is the universal truth. That's what we would call a universal in predication. But there's also another kind of universal that Aristotle talks about, which is, a universal, um, not in speech, but in causality, where you have one thing right. that is the cause of many things. Um, so when you, when Aristotle demonstrates, say, um, at the end of the physics, that there's a first mover who, which is immaterial and has infinite power, there he's talking about a universal cause, right. which is not a universal in the sense that it's said of many things, only said of one thing it only is one thing but it's uh, an object of science um, because it's a universal cause it affects all things and so yeah in st thomas's theology i think you would say something similar if i say um jesus christ is the redeemer of man and um, that's jesus christ is a particular man he's not man the universal but as redeemer he is a universal in the order of causality. That is, he's the cause of uh, the sanctification of and the salvation of um, every, all the elect. Right. And, and so we, you also see in the Summa the characteristic move of Aristotelian sciences, which is to proceed from nominal definitions to real definitions. You start with a nominal definition, and by the end you get to a real definition, which also kind of matches the uh, what I found puzzling when I first read the categories, which is that, uh, you know, the organon is all about the universals, but what real substance is, primary substance, are the particulars that we can't really know in the same way. Yeah. Uh, with that uh, tangent, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there for now. Uh, but what is, what is uh, McIntyre take out of Collingwood? Sure. So in, in a lot of ways, McIntyre is one of the few people who, um, I mean, there are a lot of scholars of Collingwood's work, but uh, McIntyre is one of the few that really carries it forward and uses it to solve the problems that he's really trying to solve philosophically. And uh, the biggest one is this question of how to grapple with um, the bankruptcy of the Marxist critique of liberalism, or liberalism understood in the broadest sense. And, uh, you know, how to come up with something that's really got... And so why is that critique, why is the Marxist critique bankrupt for, for McIntyre? Um, for 
a few reasons. I mean, historically, it manifests itself as bankrupt. Um, the you know, cause there, there's sort of more revelation. The Soviet tanks rolling into into Hungary. Right. That's the big. The, that's the big turning point. Right. Exactly. And so he's got. There are a lot of Marxists who basically decide, okay, are we going to look the other way? Um, are we going to sort of go to liberal side, or are we going to figure out something else? Um, and McIntyre is one of the ones who's saying pretty early on that you know these are sort of the conditions under which Marxism would be able to legitimately critique liberalism, and uh, these, we don't seem to have that to work with essentially. Um, but what, what he ends up doing uh, fairly early on is coming out with a work where he's trying to essentially articulate a justification for rival ethics. Uh, and this is in a book uh, called The Short History of Ethics, which he later says is, um, was really helpful in particular because of the mistakes that he makes in the book. I mean, it's a sort of, um, the narrative itself is uh, overly simplistic. It leads itself to a kind of, the conclusion is you essentially have to choose one of these sides. We, we can dig into it a bit more, but the point in the, of, the, um, of the connection there is that he essentially says is that what I didn't sufficiently learn in that book uh, was what I should have, what I knew from the beginning with Collingwood, which is this idea that you have to understand moral traditions, philosophical traditions, in the context of history, in the context of sort of being sort of this network of questions and answers that are particular to a specific time and place. Really? I mean, I think in that book, A Short History of Ethics, he almost does that too much. I mean, this, I don't remember where he, where he talks about not, not having learned that in that book, but I, I read that book not too long ago, and I remember thinking um, that it's very Collingwoodian. That is, that book, it's all about the short history of ethics. It's all about, and very Marxian too, in a way. It, he lays out sort of the social, the social situation uh, at various points, various key points in the history of ethics. It's, it's, it's right there in the title, book. a history. So, yeah, and then he get, shows Get that how, out of philosophy. Come on, man. <laughs> how each um, philosophical position is intelligible in the light of those social conditions. And the but questions laying out those social, those conditions, social conditions, would you say that that's to understand something from the inside? You know, if I woke up and I said, well, you know, I was born in such and such a place under such and such a time, with such and such relations to production, and this is why I think the way. That would be as if to understand me from the outside. Yeah. And and he does that, some some violence to Aristotle in that book, for example, this way, like this, oh, this is just gentlemanly Athenian ethics. And, yeah. Right, and, and it, what, he, what he concludes in the book, and we could talk a little bit about why it was sort of insufficiently Collingwoodian and not overly Collingwoodian, is that... Um, he says the same thing that he says about After Virtue, is that based on the argument I was able to make, really Nietzsche had the better answer. That he doesn't sufficiently come up with something that's able to put forward um, a justification for an Aristotelian ethics. No, nor does he really do, uh, uh, as much as I love After Virtue, nor does After Virtue itself... Right. To be quite honest, really come up with something that justifies Aristotelian ethics, which is why he has to make the moves he makes in his subsequent books. Right. Uh, after virtue presents such a brilliant challenge, but then his answer is kind of. Uh... Right. And so the, the big difference, I think, between after virtue and a short history of ethics, um, I mean, apart from the fact that the second is obviously a much better book in a lot of ways, is that he's able to really um, seriously focus on articulating the questions that are that are sort of mm -hmm. at, at issue 
And it, it, he's kind of does some sleight of hand in short history of ethics where he does historicize uh, in some ways that are unfair, but he also tends to treat certain questions as enduring in a sense that it's not sufficiently um, uh, subtle. And so in After Virtue, he's, he's less concerned with coming up with a way of answering the problem. And he's much more concerned with articulating the question well. And that's, I think, why it's such a, such a much more enduring work. And in a lot of ways, much more consistently Collingwoodian as well. So, so let me ask this, though. Uh, McIntyre talks about tradition, uh, traditions of thought a lot. And, and particularly, I think he talks about this, I think it's in Whose Justice, uh, Which Rationality. Uh, uh, what does he mean by that? And is that something he takes from Collingwood? I mean, he definitely extends it. But it comes, it comes from a Collingwoodian place. Right. The seed is from a Collingwoodian but it, place. But it, it's based on this idea that I mean, we alluded to a little bit in, in his work on metaphysics, which is that you know, you're starting from a framework that you're not necessarily going to be able to justify at the outset. And this is something that emerges um, and develops over time. And then as you progress into it, you get um, a kind of a clearer sense of... Uh, what the justification for it is. So the problem that eventually emerges out of um, out of after virtue is what do you deal in in the book you mentioned? It's like how do you deal with these sort of rival claims? If traditions are sort of in a sense self grounding, or they ground, what do you, what, what how do you deal with different traditions? And this is where he really takes Collingwood's sense of the logic of question and answer and pushes it sort of beyond what Collingwood was able to do. Uh, it's implicit in the work. But what he essentially is able to say is that you know a, a tradition that is able to win out over the other is one that's able to essentially account for its inability to explain um, uh, the sort of blind spots that it has, or to be able to account for um, uh, sort of moral dilemmas that aren't otherwise able to be accounted for. Now these are going to be standards that are internal to, to the tradition; they don't transcend the tradition. But there's a possibility for sort of a more coherent or more intelligible narrative. And so a great one would be this particular case with Marxism, right? So Marxism is faced with this crisis, and it doesn't really have the, uh, the firepower, it doesn't have the resources to really account for what's going on. Um, and so in some cases, people jump ship to liberalism in a way of sort of, um, sort of uh, not necessarily dodging the question, but sort of answering it within the context of this other tradition. And what McIntyre is trying to do is come up with one that's able to account for the whole conflict itself, the whole, the sort of, uh, what he would call an epistemological crisis more adequately. So, uh, I think we've covered then Collingwood, Strauss, and McIntyre, at least in sketch form, uh, with a little detour into Aristotle and Thomas as well. And I'm kind of glad we had that detour into Aristotle and Thomas, because the challenge I want to throw out is, uh, you know, McIntyre is such a brilliant thinker, and I learn so much every time I read him. Uh, but I'm always tempted to say, you know, why don't you just just be a regular Aristotelian? Why do you have to be, you know, <laughs> like just 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 land there more firmly with less uh, pirouetting on the way? Uh, because isn't the Aristotelian to me? Here's the dilemma: either we know things, or we don't. And if we know things, then the Aristotelian description of science is the best account of it that we have, which is that we have to know things, uh, we have to know their natures, they have to be immutable. It can't be something that is only what we know because I am a 
20th born in the 20th century now in the 21st century and I was educated by such and such a teacher and my parents said such and such to me when I was little and my favorite sport was you know whatever it gets silly right so so I think a short answer is probably because of the challenge of historicism ultimately I think and uh, Brett may disagree but ultimately I think Matt McIntyre capitulates and McIntyre is a historicist I don't, I don't know if Brett will cards on that question <laughs> but there's a, there's a challenge about whether we can know anything immutable whether we can trust anything handed down by history and uh that the, the challenge of nietzsche isn't so is, isn't just something that strauss is dealing with right it's something that mcintyre is dealing with and absolutely as brett mentioned revising the project maybe maybe nietzsche has the better of me here although sometimes i get this idea that uh, McIntyre focuses on um, meta-ethical questions and conditions for moral agreement um, and how we can agree and produce a society that can have ethical agreements. And it's that that he's trying to save from Nietzsche, whereas Strauss uh, very differently is trying to save these, these fundamental philosophical questions or the possibility of doing metaphysics, for example. So, so I think that's for, for, right. And I think that's where actually Strauss is helpful. Oh, not Strauss. Uh, 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 McIntyre is actually helpful because, uh, you know, not to sound too gloomy, but even if man can know truth, you know, we're, we're flesh and blood creatures. It's pretty easy to mislead us. It's pretty easy for us to fail all along the route. So to actually come to know the truth, uh, you're either going to be a, a sort of freak of nature and it'll be an accidental thing, or you will be in some sort of tradition and some sort of school that helps guide you, uh, and like Aristotle says, you know, if the moral virtues are necessary, uh, here this is me, but I'm building off Aristotle. If the moral virtues are necessary for the intellectual virtues, then you're going to have to be habituated uh, from a young age by teachers and parents and so forth. But where I'd say he's less helpful is that the science itself is not simply a tradition of thought. It's not simply... There are, in other words, there are questions that are that are across time. Yeah, that, I think uh, I think there's one a helpful way of going at this might be this. I th I don't quite agree with Rob that that uh, McIntyre is finally an historicist in the in the sense that Strauss uh, criticizes Collingwood for being. I think that ultimately Strauss and McIntyre, although they seem in the the different judgments they give on Collingwood to be polar opposites. I think that actually they're a lot closer than um, it seems at first. But I think a, a helpful thing is is to look at the difference between the kind of question that Strauss says is perennial and the kind of question that Collingwood says is useful. I was very struck by Collingwood's um, saying in his autobiography that his his logic of question and answer was something that partly that he discovered, I mean, mostly it was something he discovered in his own practice of archaeology. That is, when he was excavating a site, he realized that it, w it wasn't enough to have a vague question like, what's here? You had to have a very particular question like, when was this uh, level, um, when were the artifacts in this level uh, made? So you had to try, you had to go after specific, a very specific question, and I was struck by him saying that he learned this 
he he recognized this what he had learned from his experience he recognized it again in um in the science of, of Francis Bacon and of René Descartes in, in early modern science. And um, what, what you're dealing with there is what I would call a kind of technical question. That is, you're dealing with a very, um, a very specific kind of question that, that, is, that rests on a lot of presuppositions. So if you're an archaeologist, you have this whole practice of archaeology that you're resting on. And in order to make progress, you need to have very specific uh, questions. And this is, making progress is the ideal of, of Bacon and Descartes. They, want, they don't want a science that's just there for understanding things. They want a science that's, uh, that makes progress, that goes forward, and the progress is manifested in, in greater control. So they're interested in, in technical questions. Whereas Strauss, the kind of question that Strauss says is, perennial is a different sort of question. It's a question of a much more general nature and one in which um, one question doesn't lead to another in, in such a progressive way. So for example, Strauss in, uh, there's wonderful recordings of Strauss's classes that the University of Chicago has put online. You can listen to them. And uh, some of them are kind of hard to listen to because recordings are bad. But there's an excellent one on Plato's Mino that's also a pretty good recording, and, and I recommend everyone listening to it. But in, this, um, in these lectures on, on Plato's Mino, he, he talks about um, the kind of general knowledge that is common to all human beings. As uh, since we all live... Uh, in the world, and contrast that with the kind of specialist knowledge that you find in modern science. And he gives an example. He says, look, if a sociology department sends you out into the field to do a survey, they will give you uh, a method to follow in, in asking questions and, and doing this survey. And you have to follow the specific procedures and so on to get the kind of uh, the kind of data that they're they're after, but the sociologists, when they're giving you all the procedures and methods, one thing they will not tell you is to pose your questions to human beings rather than to dogs or lampposts. And then Shaw says, "Well, um, how do you know that you're addressing yourself to a human being when you're asking these questions?" And Shaw says, "I don't know how you know it." It's certainly not something that you learned as a matter of a technical procedure. Um, it's not something that rests on uh, that kind of Cartesian or Baconian method. But it's something that's very certain. There will be very few times when the, the surveyors who go out are going to start asking their questions uh, uh, and, and they'll discover, oh, wait, this is a lamppost, not a human well, being. Well, so nowadays, though that the surveys are all online, they take a lot of care and effort to try to make sure that they're addressing themselves to human beings and not, say, robots. You have to prove every time the survey. You have to fill out <laughs> a say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Am I a robot? <laughs> all right, that destroys my point. <laughs> uh, I, w I would actually argue that while Strauss um, does kind of give this reason for using Collingwood, so he's a... Um, a, a 
a placeholder for Heidegger. I think actually the reason why he continues to use him is that there's some really helpful overlaps. Um, and that in many ways he's a, a more convenient interlocutor, not just because he's dead and he can't answer back, but because he's able to um, use some common language. I mean, Collingwood absolutely, I mean, Strauss absolutely says, you know, using history to understand um, more of the context of, say, the ancient Greeks is essential, right? He actually says the logic of question and answer, the idea of understanding the important questions, this is, this is very similar to his idea of understanding um, an author in the way that he understood himself, right? So the, the dilemma really isn't between Collingwood and Strauss whether or not um, there is historical variability, or even whether or not there are certain questions that are enduring, I think. I think it gets precisely to this question of progress. Because for, for Collingwood, there's an important sense that as we move from the Greeks to the Romans, you know, into the medieval era, you have at least one progression within the Western civilization that evolves over time. And this is something that's actually what he would understand to be moving forward. There's a possibility of decline, but there's also the possibility of um, moving forward. And for Strauss, this is the big thing that he ha takes real big issue with, um, especially in the, in the, in the critique of um, the idea of history, where he says that you know, th this sense that um, you can sort of know better than Aristotle, or Plato specifically is the person he brings forward, the sense that you can know better than these people is sort of thinking that we can, we can move forward. And I think that's actually the real dilemma. It's not so much the question of history uh, it is the question of what history does. Is it a covering up? Is it a falling away from, a sort of post-lapsarian thing? Or is it something that can move forward in various ways? Well, I mean, isn't that kind of, maybe I'm off base here, but isn't that kind of the self-defeating problem with historicism? As soon as you introduce a notion of progress, you are no longer a radical historicist. You're taking some external standpoint to which you judge everyone else on, and then you're no longer really a thoroughgoing historicist, right? You've given away the game, as it were, because now you, like everyone else, are talking about what's actually true, what's actually real, rather than just saying, oh, this is just historically contingent on these traditions, and this answer is only because of this question. We've moved past that now. If you say we've progressed from that, then there must be some standard, right, that you're judging by. Right, and then you have, for, for McIntyre, this is fairly straightforward, because what he's able to do is um, kind of take on the Catholic philosophical tradition, or sort of work within a sort of Aristotelian Thomism, and say, like, there's, there's progress within this tradition. And there's progress in its ability to account for, or to more uh, clearly articulate truth, um, independently of a tradition. And, and there's sort of complicated ways that, internal to the tradition of Thomism or Aristotelianism, that would be understood. It's a little shakier with Collingwood, um, in part because he doesn't live long enough to really flesh out his own cosmology, but also because he's, he's a Protestant and he's sort of less inclined to embed himself within a particular tradition. But uh, I think for both of them, there's this sense that, yes, uh, within historical traditions, there is actual progress, internal to the tradition, but also internal to some kind of overarching reality. But this is what they're, what they're critical of, is the idea that we can access that reality independently of a tradition through some kind of sort of transhistorical intuition. You know, it may be the case from Strauss's perspective that uh, McIntyre or Collingwood aren't 
thoroughgoing historicists because the three sh seem to share uh, the importance, uh, the enduring importance of some sort of uh, pre-theoretical assumptions and the weight of those pre-theoretical assumptions. Uh, so the, the assumptions that Socrates has when he doesn't uh, address a dog or a tree. I think it was a tree, not a lamppost in those meaning lectures as a, as a human being. But, you know, it's also 2020, and they lived in a little bit more of a charmed world. And we may begin wondering whether the conditions for human flourishing change a lot more than they thought. Uh, we might think that the uh, philosophers... Uh, who attribute a great plasticity to human nature, from Rousseau to Marx or something like that, um, in the service of some sort of human self-creation, we might think that we should take that more seriously. So, so it may be the case that um, the human things are fixed by what we call biological limits, and that any society that's able to re uh, reproduce itself has to let men and women conjugate, but it may not be that anymore. Uh, or it may be the case that for any society to exist in the future, you can't let angry people burn down cities, but maybe we just build disposable cities now, and that's fine. And, and the need of every society to have rough and ready norms for marriage, rough and ready norms for lawfulness, and that we have to have these things sort of commonsensically or pre-theoretically, I'm, I'm not sure if we need those things anymore. And, um, and if the conditions for human flourishing change, as much as I worry that they're changing, um, then it seems that uh, those philosophers that put a lot of weight on those pre-theoretical assumptions as if they are unchanging do become historicists again, because that's not a, that's not a redoubtable exit from historicism anymore. Um, because because so of I, the problem I, of technology, and, and this is something, he, the late Heidegger can get you that, I think, you know, that technology is changing things and changing the way we are and, and think so, so, so rapidly. Yeah, I, I totally disagree. Um, <laughs> it, it seems to me that, I mean, you have to, you have to be careful about um, what, what you take to be unchanging in pre-theoretical, in our pre-theoretical grasp of the world. But, but that there, is, there are things, if we take that example from Strauss, that you can the sort of pre-theoretical understanding of what is a human being and what's not a human being. Um, the, the great uh, unreconstructed Thomist philosopher Duane Berquist, he uh, explains the same distinction in terms of two kinds of experience, what he calls common experience and uh, what he calls um, private or proper experience. And private or proper experience is the kind of experience that Collingwood talks about uh, as a as an archaeologist. It's the kind of experience that Bacon and Descartes are after. It's uh, an experience that is not necessarily common to you and others. It's it comes in large part from you. You construct the conditions in order to get the answer to something. But common experience, Berkowitz says, is. Uh, the experience that we all have and cannot avoid having. So even if the conditions of human life change a lot through technology, there's certain things that are not going to change. So everyone is going to 
experience the difference between human beings and other kinds of beings. Everyone is going to experience pleasure and pain. And no one can avoid experiencing pleasure and pain. Everyone's going to experience the difference between a lamppost and a living thing. That is the difference between life and, and non-living. Even if you um going to have sophisticated robots that might deceive you for a while, um, the the basic distinction between living and non-living is not going to go away. Lampposts um, to fall in love with. Lampposts to fall in love what with. What a world. <laughs> yeah. It's the uh, lamp from the Christmas story, maybe. And so the, the, the philosophical... Um, the, the philosophical aim of the Socratic tradition, uh, of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, of St. Thomas, of Leo, in certain, at least in certain texts, arguably of Leo Strauss, <laughs> depending on where, where <laughs> abstracting from the question of where his ultimate loyalties lie, but at least in many texts, he, he at the surface level, is doing Socratic philosophy, um, is that you can, and you see this most clearly, I think, in Aristotle, more clearly than in Plato, because it's difficult to understand what Plato, what Plato's own position is. But um, very clearly, you can see in Aristotle that the aim of philosophy is to keep uh, all our theorizing rooted and anchored in that very certain and very general pre-theoretical grasp of reality that comes out of common experience. So you don't want your theory to, the, the, the negative example would be something like Democritus who explains away common experience through his theory. Democritus gives you this atomic theory of the world where everything is just little bits of matter bouncing against each other in a void. And life is, is, a, is a, an illusion caused by the movement of the atoms uh, and so on. And Aristotle will say, no, no, we know like like um, King Lear says, I know when one lives and when, when, when one is dead, right? We know there's a difference between living and dead. And our theory um, should not try to contradict that because that, pre- that pre-theoretical knowledge is more certain than any technical theoretical knowledge. So if my theory ends up contradicting the difference between life and death the way Democritus does, then there's something wrong with my theory. I have to go back and, and change it to make it adequate to what I know and what all human beings ultimately know about reality. Yeah. I suppose if, if um, the content of that pre-theoretical knowledge begins to change, uh, then, you have a, then you have a good argument for naturalism or the updated Democritian position. Um, and I, yeah, I think problems about technology and that, that we experience today give me those concerns that we begin to take the full measure of uh, we begin to take the full measure of the problem of naturalism, but as a practical political problem. And and this, uh, Strauss doesn't talk a lot about Heideggerian technology, but this is a this is a second half of the Heideggerian challenge that I think. Yeah. One that. one kind of semi Straussian, but I think he's better than the true Straussians, is George Grant, the Canadian philosopher who read a lot of Strauss but understood him in kind of a surface level way I think with to his own benefit <laughs> and he um, and Grant Grant actually does engage directly with Heidegger on technology so, so technology has has two problems for sort of the more uh, 
uh, redneck Thomism position. One is in the level of natural philosophy. You have technology, you know, uh, putting men on the moon, so they say, um, if you'll believe that. Uh, no, but they're putting men on the moon and, you know, uh, saving lives with modern medicine and all these amazing things that science, mathematical science that rejects teleology achieves. But second, this dominion over nature also has given us at least the illusion that our own natures are similar, similarly, uh, you know, mutable and that uh, ethics is, there's no fixed ethics. There's no fixed ethical rules that there would be if we had a fixed nature. Instead, our natures can change and ethics can be whatever we want it to be. And there's still some idea, I think, of progress, but it's not quite clear why we have an idea of progress and why we have anything other than just a sort of pursuit of pleasure uh, or, or whatever it is we pursue. But I, I think I think you can look at that same picture and say, oh, man, maybe all the old ethical theories are wrong. Look at all the people mutilating themselves and uh, taking opioids and burning down their cities. Maybe we need a new politics. I think you can also look at that and say, look, the old theories were right. Look at all the people mutilating themselves and uh, getting addicted right. to opioids just and burning remember, down you, cities. You want to defend, Joel, um, the Aristotelian position from this this argument, right? And I won't accuse Potter of trying to do the same thing, but maybe. But I would say that McIntyre's position is vulnerable to this charge. Because if you're trying to give a pragmatic justification for Aristotelianism as this ethics will conduce to human flourishing in societies today. This is the sort of thing. And the proof of it is that it does conduce to human flourishing. And if it didn't, you would try to fix or change traditions. If the conditions, however, of human flourishing and what you need in order to have a flourishing society are rapidly, rapidly changing, then making that pragmatic justification is a problem. You can retreat to a you know, real full bore, unreconstructed Aristotelian position. I just don't think you're defending McIntyre oh, no. by doing that because no, no, that's no. where he won't go. <laughs> that's exactly where I'm attacking McIntyre. That's exactly where I find fault with him uh, or, or one of the places because I think he's much... We got him surrounded, boys. <laughs> <laughs> don't come out. Well, well, let me say, first of all, I think that's exactly right because, I mean, like Collingwood, what McIntyre is really concerned about is connecting theory and practice. It's not going to work for him to say, well, Aristotle's right theoretically, but he's not relevant practically. Um, he's, the only way you can really justify both is in, con in the context of the other. And uh, to a certain degree, this is why you know, he, makes, he makes a big deal out of the fact that, uh, you know, he gets this from Newman, I think, originally, but that all, every, I mean, this is a very sort of not Collingwoodian claim that everyone is sort of by default Aristotelian. And this is the framework that they're operating from. They might become a container, they might become this or that, but plain people, normal people in their normal course of life, are sort of operating within what he understands to be an Aristotelian framework. Um, and this is actually not presupposing, uh, sort of in a biological sense, um, so that we're coming into, uh, you know, this is something like that's baked in, uh, 
in, the, in a way that some people would think of in terms of like a thicker account of natural law. It's actually in many ways compatible with Collingwood, that there are certain kind of absolute presuppositions, certain first principles that are consistent, um, not necessarily because they transcend history, but they recur in history. And this is something like, like what Potter mentioned. I mean, everyone has, an ex- has experiences of pain and loss. Everyone has experiences of death. Everyone has experiences of um, you know, all kinds of things. The difference is, is that the way we come to those experiences, so not just, for instance, the question of um, why is there something rather than nothing, this, this emerges in a Greek context in a very specific way, right? But also, um, uh, you know, you can, you know this, this occurs, for instance, like in a Chinese context, right? But how we arrive at that question uh, determines how we move forward with the question. And I think that this also applies in practical sense as well. So when we're dealing with, you know, how do we live well, or, you know, how do we educate our children well? This is something that emerges continually, right? But it's not necessarily the same question because we're arriving at it from a different place. So I think it's true in a sense, but in another sense, it's not true. So it's, it's true that what we will do, you know, uh, depends on who we are, how we're habituated, what our circumstances are. Uh, and I think this is no real challenge for the unreconstructed Aristotelian position because Aristotle himself is pretty clear that virtue is only possible really if you get the right upbringing or maybe through sheer dumb luck. It might be a, a, a fluke thing, but for the most part, you need the right upbringing. You need to be in the right place. And even for learning, you'll need teachers. So for the coming to be, uh, but it's not true that the actual correct answers are going to be different unless you're talking about contingent things like what's the prudentially best course for the king to do at this point. But so I, I think the the answers are going to be truly uh, universal and perennial. That would be my my pushback there, my uh, very redneck Thomist uh, sort of take. Yeah, and McIntyre does talk about this too. That there's certain things, um, there's certain virtues, for example, that are necessary for any kind of human community um, to exist. Even so, for example, truthfulness. He talks about how you can't have a human human community in which truthfulness is not practiced. Uh, if everyone's just lying all the time, then there's no common life. Um, you need some kind of courage or people won't stick to uh, their goals when the going gets tough and so on. So he he will talk about how there's certain perennial answers, as it were, that is there's certain uh, goods that need, that are are always necessary in whatever context. And I, I think it's also the case that, uh, you know, to, to go back to the do we live in a society question, <laughs> sometimes we don't, right. you know, I mean, right. sometimes it's right. sometimes it's very thin. And when you see these breakdowns and when people become thoroughly uh, dissociated from reason, uh, you you see societal breakdowns. And I think that's sort of why I said earlier, you can look at these same things and say, yeah, see, you you do need virtue. <laughs> Why is virtue important? Look around you. <laughs> I think this is actually one important uh, departure between McIntyre and Collingwood on the one hand and Strauss on the other, is that these necessary conditions are um, the social conditions for um, a society that's able to function 
apply to philosophy in a much more egalitarian way uh, for them as opposed to Strauss. So for both Collingwood and Strauss, the, the process that they're describing um, in terms of the logic of question and answer, in terms of um, having a historical sense, uh, this is, on in the one hand, something that's uh, the work of professionals, but it's also, in a very real sense, something that, every, that all people do, that all people, all pla- what McIntyre calls all plain people, all sort of non-professional philosophers, um, are asking these philosophical questions and are progressing in them in their life, right? And so for Strauss, very importantly, these sort of perennial questions, these foundational questions, are questions for the wise. And there's this sort of unbridgeable gulf, right, between those who are able to do this and the, the sort of everyday people. And their role in society is very different. I wonder how McIntyre would respond to this, actually. I haven't given it much thought, but I know this is supposed to be a sort of edifying podcast, but... It's just not a. It's just not a. Give us the black. It's just not a mode I do well in. Um, I, I have a kind of nightmare, I suppose, about a society that uh, maybe ma- maintains a military advantage by um, by technological means. In some cases, a technological edge, you know, um, thunk up by a prior generation. Um, a society in which a lot of uh, you know, the, the, the production, um, it's the productiveness of its economy or something like that is also because of its, its technological edge. And um, I wonder if it's a kind of a zero-sum game or a society in which human virtue is just less important, um, uh, even, even um, you know, truthfulness and contracts and, and that sort of thing, just because, well... You know, if a lot of businesses fail because it becomes a society of liars or something like that, well, it's, it'll be fine anyway because it has this sort of, uh, uh, because, uh, you know, te- technology makes up for all of these sins. Um, but that's a, that's a yeah. despondent thought. We'd have to yeah, go full post-scarcity so... or something like that to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, Isn't this so Russ Douthat's latest book? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> the permanent, the permanence of decadence. Well, he's right then. He's right because it happens to align with my intuitions on the matter. <laughs> even but, uh, a, even I'll, a blind I'll, I'll read the I'll read the book and then I'll say he's right uh, on you know whatever his own grounds are. Yeah, so I think one thing that what Strauss confirmation bias is very powerful with me. <laughs> So the long-term what, what viability is? of this, like his, the, the, the technological sort of trajectory of Western civilization and this lending itself to more stability, I think um, long-term is a really new idea, right? I mean, Strauss, Arendt, all these people would have, they would have been operating from the opposite standpoint that, you know, we've reached a point where things are so tenuous. Right, and I think that's why there, there's this there, there's this upshot of uh, the Straussian political lesson, which is always something like moderation. Um, you know, only so much can be changed, um, and part of that is for the the preservation of the regime. But I sort of look around and I I begin to wonder, well, golly, how bad do we have to be <laughs> before it all falls down? You know, maybe right, it's just right. durable. And um, and maybe the durability has nothing to do with our uh, with <laughs> with our base level the, the the sturdiness of the yeomanry or our base level virtues. Right. Right. An important sense that for for Collingwood and for McIntyre, uh, the durability 
or the sustaining of a of a society or of a civilization isn't going to be measured by its ability to um, persist in these more tangible, concrete ways. So Collingwood made a big deal out of during World War II. He said he was sure that England was going to lose the war, but his worry was that it was going to go Nazi in its ability to win it. And even if it would persist, that would be the end of its civilization in an important sense. And McIntyre is a very similar idea, that even as you know, um, uh, nation states continue. Um, there is a really well, real sense that if they lose the thread uh, in terms of recognizing the true function of society, uh, even if it continues it's sort of like a zombie society, it's not actually still there in the way that it's not actually continuing and progressing as, a, as sort of a living thing. Well, this is all thoroughly depressing. Do we have any uh, closing words of cheer or are we going to end on... Uh, <laughs> zombie technological advance going on and on as everyone slowly deteriorates and the sun burns out don't forget about that oh yeah we got time we got time <laughs> the sun burns out yeah i suppose I wanna... it's good to know that christ won the final victory <laughs> you suppose <laughs> i want to I, su- I, wanna... I suppose it's good to know that i didn't say i oh, suppose okay. that i said i suppose it's good to know that you know, alternatively, it might just uh, demotivate me for making anything yes, better. It's very good. It's very good to know. Maybe that. I should be more anxious about that and uh, uh, reduce the status of that knowledge. <laughs> if Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are the most miserable of all men, as St. Paul says. But he has, so we're not. <laughs> yeah, I might be nailed either way on that. <laughs> but I wanted to close with a little one of my favorite passages from Aristotle which is Aristotle at his most historicist. This is uh, metaphysics too. The effect which lectures produce on a hearer depends on his habit. For we demand the language we are accustomed to, and that which is different from this seems not in keeping, but somewhat unintelligible and foreign because of its unwantedness. For it is the customary that is intelligible. The force of habit is shown by the laws in which the legendary and childish elements prevail over our knowledge about them owing to habit. Thus, some people do not listen to a speaker unless he speaks mathematically, others unless he gives instances, while others expect him to cite a poet as witness. And some want to have everything done accurately, while others are annoyed by accuracy, either because they cannot follow the connection of thought or because they regard it as petty foggery. For accuracy has something of this character, so that as in trade, so in argument, some people think it mean. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's uh I think that's a pretty good quote to close on, and despite the so- uh somewhat uh dark and gloomy ending uh this was really productive for me and uh a lot to chew on here thank you uh brett and felix for coming on thank you potter as always and uh anytime you want unwanted childishness and pedophagery <laughs> you got my email address <laughs> wait thank wait so uh, uh are you the accurate one here i, I don't think that's quite right <laughs> no no I, I, i'm just here to lacerate the listener <laughs> <laughs> all right Take care. Thanks, y'all.
Oh. 